This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly pop culture digest. I'm Sean Paddenden. And I'm Yelena Sofronievich. This week, we are thrilled to be joined by the rhinoceros himself, one half of Flight of the Concords, Brett McKenzie. New Zealand's finest joins us to talk about making music with the Muppets and the Simpsons and his debut solo album, Songs Without Jokes. And things can only get better. We listen to Hot Chip's new album, get it? Freak Out Release. The return of Sad Dad Bangers. And what will we think? Plus, we watch Bolton's answer to Black Mirror. Teen thriller Red Rose centres around a mysterious app which begins to play with the minds of young friends during their summer holes. Out now on BBC Three. All this on more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Brett McKenzie is a New Zealand musician, comedian, actor, and one half of musical comedy duo Flight of the Concords. Along with Jermaine Clement, FOTC sparked a BBC radio series, US TV series, and many comedy spin-offs. He's also the only person we'll stay up until 11pm to record for. Hello, Brett. Hi, everyone. Thanks for, thanks for staying up late, everyone. Appreciate it. Yeah. You won the Oscar for Best Music for Man or Muppet, the lead song from the 2011 film. What was it like accepting the Academy Award? Oh, it was it was an awesome night. A lot of people think when you work in Hollywood that it's all kind of glamorous and celebrities and kind of shiny and fancy and like in the magazines and on TV. But actually, in reality, it's pretty grim and depressing driving around uh, on the freeways. But that night... Los Angeles was like what people think life in Los Angeles is like. Uh, wow. So it was great. It was like one night of like A-list Hollywood, Hollywood glamour. And it felt like I was inside uh, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum, but everyone was alive. <laughs> <laughs> and can I ask, does the songwriting method differ between Muppets and men? Mm, very similar. Very similar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's meet our other guest. From FOTC to FOTP, that's friend of the podcast to you and me, Justin Quirk is a writer, editor and glam metal expert. He's also a regular on The Bunker. Hello, Justin. Hello, Sean. How are you? Not bad. It's nice to be back. This is my first, I don't think I've actually been on since you rebranded as Culture Bunker. Mm. Mm. <laughs> like, uh, I think I, I left the scene when it was still uh, yeah. big health and um, I feel like I've now like a character who's been written back into a drama. Yeah. <laughs> I must say, you've dressed for the part, you're glossier, you've shaved, you've obviously had some sort of stuff done. It's amazing. Well, I got, I got this deal on Instagram, you know, I went off to Turkey for three weeks, came back with a full weave and new teeth and uh, <laughs> half a face. So um, but, yeah, I feel like I need a sort of complicated backstory to explain my absence mm. for the last 18 months. But in fact, I've just been sitting in my uh, very cool basement flat where 
the heat wave is not affecting me. So not a, it's not a great it's not a great backstory. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, brush up. Justin, you've eagerly been watching the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, I believe. Tell us about the metal on show there. I'm, I'm a huge athletics nerd. So for me, this summer, I've just been like an absolute pig in shit, basically. <laughs> had, you know, Tour de France, women's football, World Athletics Championships, and then the Commonwealth Games at the end of it, which brilliant in and of itself. But it was also in Birmingham, which is one of my favourite cities in the country. It is a, such a grossly underrated place. And people are so snidey about it the whole time. And you're like, everything's going to so It's got amazing canals, brilliant food, incredible desi pubs. It has, you know, it is the birthplace of heavy metal in this country. It's like the British home of reggae, you know, steel pulse, hands with revolution, all this stuff comes from there. You need to work for the Birmingham Tourism uh, Board, because, uh, yeah, New Zealand, Birmingham just is not known as the home of British metal. Well, I, I probably should declare that I have got, you know, a huge uh, brown envelope of readies here <laughs> by, the, by the Birmingham uh, tourism. But yeah, you know, it's a, you know, Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Napalm Death, you know, all the greats came from there. And the opening ceremony, pretty good. There's a 50-foot-high mechanical bull romping around the stadium with glowing satanic eyes. And then exceeding all our wildest expectations, the closing ceremony peaked with Black Sabbath reforming, coming on to Sabbath, bloody Sabbath, with the giant red-eyed mechanical bull romping around the place. It was uh, I could not have been happier. Fantastic. <laughs> Sounds like, yes, indeed, you were very happy, and now you're going to be very sad because it's over. I have a very narrow emotional bandwidth, so <laughs> so luckily I'm um, I'm quite you know sort of what is this earth thing you call love like Terminator. So um, yeah, I mean by my standards, yes, but I, I can live with it. Are many athletics fans metal music fans as well? Is that like a big crossover, or is, are you quite a small group? I think I'm sort of a subset within a subset. There, yeah. it's um, it's quite small. But um, yeah, the the other high point was um, someone did a rave tune that sampled uh, the riff from Breaking the Law by Judas Priest, which was another uh, another high point of the evening for me. So yeah, um, pretty much the only thing it didn't have was an enormous balty, which would have been the. Uh, I feel like for true Birmingham <laughs> representation, you should have had. There's a real missed opportunity for a mashup there that instead of breaking the law is just breaking records, breaking records as people are, you know, no, just me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we can go on. We could go on and on if this was a podcast about the Commonwealth Games. And yet I think it might not be, Eleanor. Sorry. <laughs> I think you're wasted on the bunky, Eleanor. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Remember that, everyone. But before we move on, a reminder you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without ads when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture, and much more. Why not support independent production and back us for as little as a few pounds per month? Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And once again, a warm Culture Bunker welcome to a multi-award winning musician, including at least two Grammys, I think, and an Emmy, I think. He's a songwriter, actor and comedian. He's one half, as we say, of legendary folk rock duo Flight of the Concords and has worked with the Muppets, as we said, and written music for a particularly fine episode of The Simpsons. More later, he is quite clearly one of New Zealand's national treasures. It's Brett McKenzie. Hello, Brett, again. Hello again. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Uh, no Emmy. Haven't got an Emmy. Yeah. Ah, I no. said you had an Emmy on Wikipedia, so I might be writing in. Oh, really? No, yeah. Maybe I put that in there just one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, and there's yeah. an Oscar, and then you're know, bunging you know, something, like a British award. <laughs> Come on. So, how's New Zealand at the moment? Is it busy, or are the sheep just sort of roaming free and looking a bit bored? 
New Zealand's pretty busy. The borders have opened up. So, because we were kind of this isolated, very much, very isolated for a few years there mm-hmm. with, with COVID, and you couldn't even fly in or out. Even if you're New Zealand, if you left the country, you couldn't reliably get back in. Mm-hmm. You, you, there was a lottery system. It was kind of like buying tickets to Glastonbury or something. <laughs> and that was how you got in, back into the country because mm-hmm. um, they had a limit for the, for the um, COVID sort of hotels. Of course, uh, but yeah. now it's kind of opened up and people are starting to move around again. And, um, I think we're behind. I, I feel like friends who have been in the UK or overseas have said that everyone's kind of just given up on COVID. But in New Zealand, we're sort of, I think we're six months behind the sort of psychology of that, you know, that COVID jadedness. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm quite trustful of everything else. You seem to have a debut solo album out too, Songs Without Jokes, out in a couple yes. of weeks. We need to start with the title. Sure. There are some jokes in that there's a few um yeah aside sort of gags but i was kind of on a mission my idea Mm -hmm. was like to write something different so i kind of slightly obsessively tried to write songs and when i started putting a joke in there or a ridiculous (laughs) rhyme i was like no 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 no, take that out see if see if we can do one without them and Mm. um that was the that was the kind of idea for the for the album and and i wasn't sure what to call the record and when I was telling my friends, I've got, I've done this record, and we come, and they said, "Is it comedy?" and and I said, "No." And so the first time, whenever I spoke about it, I was always explaining it's not, um, they're not comedy songs. And so I thought, if I call it songs without jokes, I won't have to do that. But it turns out it didn't work anyway. Because look at me, so yeah, I should have called it something else. <laughs> <laughs> songs with jokes and without. I don't know. I'm not yeah. in marketing. Yeah, for people who haven't seen it. The cover is you sitting in the sea with what looks like an insurance nightmare of a piano. Why are you sitting in the sea with a piano? I was trying to think of images for the record, and I, mm-hmm. I thought, um, wow, wouldn't it be cool to put a piano in the ocean? Um, and I live by the by the coast here, and mm-hmm. um, I got, had this old piano I got off um, Trade Me, which is New Zealand's kind of eBay, yeah. and for a few dollars. And I thought, okay, let's let's do it. And turns out it's really tricky to put a there's a little piano, but even a little piano in the ocean is a kind of a nightmare. And there was four guys helping move it. And mm-hmm. then as the waves would wash by, the piano would sort of tilt. The power of the ocean is very strong mm-hmm. um, yeah. on a piano. And it would sort of veer over and almost crush me and then would pull it back up. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, I like the image of the idea of, I guess, there was something kind of about the oceans rising. Uh, we mm-hmm. live, you know, New Zealand, like the UK is an island. And there's this sense of, ah, yeah, what's <laughs> How's this going to work? Is that is that suburb even going to be there? What's going to happen? Yeah, so yeah. there's something kind of climate changey about it, and also just kind of funny and strange. I liked. Yes, absolutely. And Death by Piano could have been, or maybe, your second solo album title. It's true. Yeah, it's it kind of looks like I'm sort of a classical, like it's some sort of classical piano album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very good. Enough of such trifles, though. We'll talk some more, but let's listen to a track from the LP. We're going to listen to a bit of If You Want to Go, and it's also the full track is on our playlist. Link in the show notes. So here it is.
this is a meld of genres, is what I think. There's a bit of yacht rock, dinner party jazz, the soft piano rock, Elton John style moves. Some of it sounds a little bit, and this is a very good thing, Hall Aller Oats esque. Hall or Oats, I said it very wrong. Hall and Oats, Hall or Oats, <laughs> one or the other. Um, <laughs> maybe, Oaty Halls. Um, who are your inspirations on this record? What were you listening to when you wrote the songs? That last song, that's definitely got an Elton John influence. And then Leon Russell's a big influence for me, who obviously was an influence for Elton John. So there's a bit of a New Orleans-y thing on a couple of songs. And then at the same time, there's kind of a Randy Newman, Harry Nilsson-y vibe. Um, I guess it's a lot of songwriters who have songs that are a little bit funny and strange. I think I kind of like that ability for them to put a weird song. And that kind of 70s, 80s LA studio sound was also... Mm zone that i was i i just completely love so i was just obsessed with trying to get like it to sound like a slick one of the one of the songs has a steely dan kind of vibe yeah and uh, it doesn't sound like a a, a, a home recording kind of lo-fi vibe it's a very sort of hi-fi record mm-hmm. and the guitarist who plays on it was a session player who played on the steely dan records and uh, this guy dean amazing guitar player dean parks and he's played on lots of thousands of records but it was just i met him doing the muppets he played on the muppet stuff and i met him and yeah. i said oh, i'm doing this record do you want to do this and he was like yeah i'd love to and just in the studio going ah could you make the solo um a little more like um that steely dan sound and he's like yeah yeah i got this i got this and so then just fun asking the people who played on some of those original records to then play the same style absolutely yes yes well that's fantastic isn't it were you beavering away writing this stuff when you're also having to write Fight of the Concords, more whimsical work, or is this all very fresh? Uh, yeah, it was after after Concords. It was no, it was mm-hmm. obviously I'd write these songs at night. It's funny. I'd my day job is really writing ridiculous songs. I spend a lot of time on calls talking about songs for dragons or unicorns or <laughs> yes. um, you know weird. These are like the issues that they're like. Oh, we need the the dragon needs to be slightly happier in the song or something. <laughs> and and I'm like okay. And then at night the kids would go to bed. I get the kids to sleep mm-hmm. and then. I play my guitar in the in the lounge and and I'd just sort of tinker around and come up with song ideas that really weren't comedy songs and weren't story songs for films or the, you know and I was like oh these are kind of what should I do with these these kind of, I kind of liked them and I enjoyed writing them and so I guess uh, through my whole career I've really just tried to do things I find fun and mm-hmm. that's usually a pretty good path to take creatively so I kind of followed that and created this thing this new thing yeah dave's pace to me am i wrong sounds like john parr and st elmo's fire oh yeah yeah it's got a bit mm-hmm. of that the it's synth, getting a bit the of that synth. yes vibe yeah, yeah yeah you are actually talking about serious stuff in it i mean it's, you're not just saying that this world you say this world is broken and you are talking about climate change and the real stuff but within this sort of quite you know music that is a salve to us it's not necessarily hitting you over the head you know the message is creeping in was that on purpose yeah i've always loved you know how the smiths um would often have these songs like what's that song about dropping a bomb on the town you know oh the, the yeah, town if, they forgot the bomb yeah. come armageddon um every yeah. day's like sunday every, day like every day's like sunday right yeah. what what i've always loved about some of those songs is they're very kind of catchy and like oh yeah i'm singing along and they're like oh this is Really dark. What's he? What's he talking about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that kind of that juxtaposition of of sweet kind of mm. melodies with darker lyrical mm. material. I've always had. A, I'm really fond of that. So yeah, the idea of the song of like the world is broken, the world's falling apart, that we're we're all screwed. Yeah, but it's very catchy. Sing along. Yes, sing along, everyone. Is. 
<laughs> you realise you're humming to it, passed away, yes. Now, of course, as we've mentioned, many people will know you from Flight of the Concords, your project with Jermaine Clement. You describe yourself the almost award-winning fourth most popular folk duo in New Zealand at one point. Are you still working with Jermaine? We're not working at, any, at the moment, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did, in 2018, we did a big tour of the UK and filmed a live concert special. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing we, we did, which actually feels like a long time ago now, but COVID kind of has made time slide away a little bit. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we don't, haven't got any new projects at the, on the go at the moment. Yeah. But you haven't split up. No, we're not sure for the fans. what we'll do next. Yeah, there's no real no plans, but yeah, we mm-hmm. we hang out a bit. We're not really writing writing songs. We tried to write some comedy songs, and we kept on realizing we had already written them. We'd like start an idea, like, oh, this is a bit like this other song. We we've written about eighty comedy songs, right. and um, so we we were like, oh well, it started getting hard to write. Well, anyway, we started doubling up on ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got to find something different to kind yes. of as a way of, as a new form or something to make yeah, it fresh. Yeah, workshop it, as they say. Yeah, I've got to do some workshops. Yeah, yeah, go, go, yeah go to the forest and do some trust yeah. exercises. Yeah, or go to the forest. Yeah, yeah write some stuff in the forest. <laughs> yeah. So many, many years ago, remember box sets before streaming, I did go through Flight the Concourse, all episodes of that weekend. I was trying to describe it, thinking, I've got to describe this for the podcast, for anyone who doesn't know, couldn't. So if an alien came down to Earth, how would you describe the show and what was the secret of its appeal? Because it went massive, didn't it? It was, yeah, really successful at the time. I guess the show is about two struggling musicians, hopeless musicians with an even more hopeless manager um, <laughs> trying to break into the the music scene in New mm. York in the kind of hipster Lower East Side. Yes. And... I think what people seem to connect with, well, there are lots of different levels, but it was unusually weird and strange for the time for American TV. They had these quite big shows, quite shiny, mm. um, highly produced. And um, we were like a sort of student film production that managed mm. to end up on HBO. And we got the platform to, for people to see it. And it was just so weird that this that it had been made. And I think HBO... We were really not on their radar. It was like this low-budget little comedy. They were focusing on Entourage and other big shows, and they didn't really, they never, they didn't really concentrate on us. And mm-hmm. we just made this thing, and we didn't really. We came from a theatre background, comedy background, comedy clubs, Edinburgh Festival, and we just put out a lot of ourselves into the show. And I think a lot of the successful TV shows, often that's the case. The, the creators have have really thrown a lot of their own life into it and i remember one tv creator saying you sort of only get to make one great tv show in your life really because mm. you got what you got your story yes and usually it has to be about you there's something about yourself yeah. that helps make it mm-hmm. really resonate mm-hmm. how do you think that the new zealand humor does translate into u.s humor and beyond well jermaine and i when we started we did edinburgh for, for a few years and mm-hmm. we toured the uk a lot i remember playing newcastle and walking down that street after this little dive comedy bar and being astonished by all the people out in the middle of a cold night, just like partying. When mm. then we'd catch a train to the next, we, we toured around the train tours, you know, playing to a, in these little comedy clubs. And we learned pretty early on that if it was funny in New Zealand, it was funny any English speaking country. The only place we had trouble was when we went to Holland for a comedy festival and there was mostly clowns before the opening for us. And then right. we came on and they just didn't, if people don't speak English. Yeah. Concords really didn't didn't translate, but any English speaking country really it was it was really fine, and and we learned early on not to put too many, you know, you obviously can't do too regional specific. We just stopped doing regional specific stuff very early on because we toured 
But the same, it's amazingly the same jokes, like the same joke we write a song, one of our first songs we wrote, like we wrote Fudu Fafa, a little French song with mm. sort of um, school French in it and Serge Gainsbourg sort of style, yeah. you know, bon, uh, le croissant, you know, all that kind of ridiculous stuff, just fake French. I mean, silly, not, it's real French, but, you know, yeah, yeah. really basic. And then yeah. we wrote that in our flat and our flatmates would come home and we'd be singing the silly song in the lounge. You know, 15 years though, 10 years later, we're in like the O2 Arena playing to like 10,000 people, croissants, same joke, same joke. <laughs> so like, like yeah. just a bigger, more and people. Just more but, people laughing. Just more people, but the same, they're laughing at the same points. Yeah. And so there wasn't a problem with it translating. Mm. I think the one, there was a slight demographic in the States who were used to things that were broader and they thought we weren't funny because we were too, it was just a bit subtle or a little low energy. And mm-hmm. um, they, there was a, there was a, there is a demographic who didn't like us. But, well, um, damn them, damn them. They yeah. don't enjoy life, yeah. obviously. Yeah, yeah, we didn't need them. Yeah. Back in 2010, you and Jermaine were immortalised in yellow on The Simpsons, and you even wrote some of the songs for the recent play on Morrissey in Panic on the Streets of Springfield. What was it like working with the team? Working on The Simpsons is so fun. Oh, I'm so glad. I am so glad. <laughs> they come along and they they watch you and then they draw the, – there's these amazing artists who – I mean, they draw little pictures of you and then they can – they sort of film you and then they the way you move, they, they make the character move a little bit like that. And then when you actually get to work with the characters who are – I remember we did it. it. Was a it was a we had to do the the table read. They read each script a week before, you know, as they're developing it, or a couple weeks before. And being on the phone with, and then sitting there like, oh my god! And then Homer's talking through the phone. And of course, when it's on the phone, it sounds like you're actually talking to Homer and Lisa and Bart. And it's yeah, it's really magic because those voices that you just know them so well. And one of the coolest things was then writing songs, and then Lisa sings a line in the song. And the song sounds okay. You're like, oh, it's good, it's good. And then when Lisa starts singing, you go, oh, wow, it's really it's really The Simpsons. Tell me about writing for the Panic on the Streets episode because that was a very controversial one. The Panic on the Streets episode was the one with the Quillaby, a Morrissey-esque <laughs> character. And Tim Long wrote the episode. And he's the same writer who wrote the Concords episode. And so he got in touch with me and like, do you want to write the song for this episode? And I was like, yes, I'll write a song for The Simpsons. <laughs> so fun. And then, yeah, it was Morrissey, Smith, and I, I was already a fan, so I knew the sound. And I had a ball. He'd, he'd written the song idea. And I was like, okay, like, okay, I can see how I can make this like sound like a Morrissey depression kind of catchy <laughs> melody and we had really fun time writing it and they did the table reads and it worked really well and then uh, they got Benedict Cumberbatch to play Quillaby and he recorded it and sometimes you never know sometimes actors come in and they they make the song terrible and sometimes they come in and really knock it out of the park and that day Benedict was really great it was on Zoom uh, during COVID and he's quite method I mm. don't really know him but he was he was quite serious about it and that kind of suited the seriousness of Morrissey, in a way, uh, Quillaby. Did he have a bunch of flowers with him in the Zoom? I, I didn't get the. <laughs> yeah, it was quite weird. It was one of those. It was right in the in the sort of vortex of COVID. So he was in this room by himself, and then the door opened, and then a cup of tea got pushed through, and the door got closed <laughs> again, because no one was even going anywhere near each other. Anyway, he really got into it and sang his heart out, and I I kind of worked him pretty hard because you know you kind of directing the session. I make sure he sang all the bits, and then I kind of then I can build the song, and yeah, he sounded 
great and really funny and it just was really powerful. And, and you know, sometimes things that click together. And then the song came out and the episode came out. It was a very funny episode, very funny. And, yes, you know, Marcy was, if you might not know, but this became a sort of big story for a few days because Marcy mm, got I really remember. angry about it. It was You're horrified. Really angry. Yeah, yeah. And, and he wrote this really hilariously angry, like almost ridiculously mm. angry letter, which was perfect for the character in the show. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is what we're talking about. You're crazy. Yeah. This sounds completely out of character for more. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh, someone should have told him not to press send on this letter. Like, you know, and, um, anyway, it, it kind of blew up, but the Simpsons, mm-hmm. they were kind of, I mean, Tim was just kind of thrilled at how much it blew up because the Simpsons has been around for so long that it, mm. it's sort of, it's almost the fabric of like, it doesn't often pop up in, in the news because mm-hmm. everyone's like, yeah, it's just the more Simpsons. So it was really fun. And then we released the song as a single. And yeah, yeah, really, really pretty hilarious few days with me going, friends going, Brett, turns out Morrissey hates you. I've been, I've been he hates us all. It's all fits I'm, fine. I'm Morris, it's all yeah, I'm on, yeah, like everyone, I'm on Morrissey's blacklist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great episode, that one, though. I watch it again with my child. He loves it. One of my favorite bits is with these, like the characters at doing a concert, sort of mm. washed up, and he's firing a T-shirt gun. You know, where they fire like T-shirts yeah, yeah. into the crowd, but it's a sausage gun. He's firing <laughs> sausages out into the crowd. Bloody hilarious. You've also worked with the Muppets. What was that like? Yeah, yeah. Well, I spent a few years working with the Muppets. Again, you know, iconic characters. And so suddenly I was writing and then Kermit's, Kermit the Frog is singing a song <laughs> that I've written or Miss Piggy's singing a song. Doesn't and I got better. really, I mean, yeah. it was so fun. And my kids at the time were quite young. And I remember my daughter going, off to work, daddy, off to, to write songs with Miss Piggy. And um, <laughs> she thought Miss Piggy was real at this point. So dad was just working with the real Miss Piggy. Sorry, excuse and, me, excuse um, me. You're saying that Miss Piggy isn't real. Oh, I don't want to break it. Um, there were some amazing stories about like early on, like the height of the Muppets, Jim Henson, they would fly Miss Piggy first class. They'd buy her a first class <laughs> seat and put the Miss Piggy puppet on the first class seat. They were just like having a total ball. With, yeah. With, with it. Anyway, yeah, really fun working with them. And I got quite good at like, because I have to do all the demos. So I'd write all the songs and I'd, I'd have, I'd record all these parts. Like, so my Miss Piggy got quite, you know, got quite good. Like, yeah, I haven't done it in a while, but Miss Piggy, here I am. This is my song. And sort of like squeaky and I'd like, I'd try to write and then I'm like, you know, Kermit's singing like this. Miss Piggy replies <laughs> like this. So it was just really, I mean, they're not perfect, but it was really fun. I got really into like building these um, demos of Muppet songs. The album's out on August 26th and there's a big UK tour in September for everybody. What do you like about visiting the UK and NB? It's falling apart at the moment. Don't get a train. Everything everything is going wrong. The infrastructure is wild. But what do you like about it when it is working? You know what I love on the trains mm-hmm. is they come along and they give you a cup of tea and you can get like biscuits and chips and things. In New Zealand, you can't get anything on a train. That's my highlight. That's my highlight of the UK. I love what you've done with trains and snacks. Well, so, well, they're, they're, when they were, is that still going? They're still doing that. The yeah, they're just cancelling them. But the tracks all like gone all bendy. Yeah. They, they, they've melted and they're cancelling them, and everyone's on strike. But apart from that, you get biscuits. Thank you so much, Brett. It's been wonderful talking to you, and obviously, we'll be talking to you throughout the show. We'll be hearing your song choices too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Now, every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favorite track of theirs in order to delight you, the listener. Justin Quirk, what's yours and why do you love it? My current favorite is the track Full Moon Baby by uh, the wonderful Holly Cook from her latest album, Happy Hour. Holly Cook's first was probably known as she's the daughter of Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols. She's now on her fifth album, if you include a dub version. She did a, um, she's done four proper albums, one dub that she did with Prince Fatty. Her music is absolutely wonderful. She's channeling not just British reggae, not just Lovers Rock, but a really, really specific time when sort of Lovers Rock was drifting over into the kind of reggae-ish end of post-punk, so sort of late 70s, early 80s. So it's sort of like late end of the slits, a lot of stuff Den- Dennis Bovel was doing. Dennis Bovel shows up on her new album as well. Voice is incredible. Her songwriting is brilliant. She sounds like no one else out there at the moment. And she's managed to do that thing of really heavily channeling a older epoch in music but not just sounding like a pastiche of it um so i cannot recommend it enough so this is um holly cook and full moon baby from happy hour which is out now super and holly cook is going straight on the playlist on to new albums hot chip return after 2019's sad dad banger album a bath full of ecstasy synth geeks old time ravers remix kings and it seems reflective types will the album freak out release push our buttons let's listen to the single it's also called freak out release to get us in the mood we can play a snippet here and the full song is on our playlist Justin Quirk, Freak Out Release, contains the lines, music used to be an escape, now I can't escape it. What did you make of the album? Hmm. I'll preface this by saying that generally where I land with Hot Chip, I found myself in a very, very small minority in that everybody I know absolutely loves them. I feel like I should love them. I kind of admire what they do and I understand what they're doing and I'm you know it's there's a lot that I like about it it always leaves me feeling slightly cold and this album was no exception from this and it's odd because you know they're primarily you know electronic music dance floor based as a style of music that primarily works on feel and I find that it never quite lands with me when they do it and and so I have a similar issue with LCD Sound System, who obviously they're mm-hmm. connected to. They form part of their live band. And it's always that thing where I think I get all the reference points. I suspect I like exactly the same music that they do. I like the things that they're referencing, the things they're sampling. Mm-hmm. But there's always something about it which ends up feeling slightly like an academic exercise. And I was trying to work out what it is because it's things like the Two Bears project that was sort of, uh, I don't, it's, it's an act in its own right. It's not a side, mm-hmm. but it's sort of branched off. Them. Two Bears stuff I really like, and that moves me a lot more. And it hits every note that I really like about house. I mean, I love house music. And the Two Bears stuff I really, really mm-hmm. get. And the parts of this album that I thought worked better 
were the bits where often because of a different vocal being injected, it didn't particularly sound like Hot Chip. So I thought um, that Freak Out release track, um, Soul Wax, were involved in that yeah. production. That sounds noticeably kind of rougher and more analogue than a lot of the stuff on the album. It also sounds like Killer by Adamskin Seal, which I thought might you know be some something you'd like. Yeah, and, and Killer was an absolute stone cold bang yes. to this day. So you know, no yeah. bad thing there. More track, yeah. Channel it. There's a track that hard to be funky that features Lou Hater from Neon Pony yes. Club. That sort of sounds like something on ZYX on one of those sort of old like slow Italo labels from mm-hmm. the mid eighties. I thought that worked really well. I don't know. I kept sort of thinking, well, you know, there's loads that I like about this in quite a sort of academic way. It just constantly, at its best, I say, it left me a bit cold. The bits where I really thought it didn't work, there's this constant sort of juxtaposition between, you know, up-tempo 4-4 and then sort of melancholic, winsome sort of downbeat element over the top of it. And I think mm-hmm. of things like, it was reminding me a bit of things like the lightning seeds. And then at its worst point, the one that I thought it reminded me of was, do you remember that Stars in Their Eyes single by Just Jack? You would know it if you had it. It was like a Saturday night TV staple about 12 years ago. And there was a bit in there where I was like, oh God, it's really reminded me of this. Um, so I, I don't want to feel unnecessarily down on this album and i accept that the problem is probably me rather than mm-hmm. and on the music i think if you like hot chip you'll probably like this but for me it had the same sort of fundamental problems in its sort of underpinnings that i think a lot of their stuff does for me sounds like you really liked it justin <laughs> 10 out of 10 brett i believe you gave this a listen what did you make of it i gave it the kitchen doing the dishes test mm-hmm. and how did they turn out those dishes because that's the real i actually I had quite a good time dancing around my kitchen, <laughs> drying my dishes to these yeah. songs. I do quite like the weird vocodery thing on Freak Out. Mm-hmm. I'm always a bit of a sucker for There's a song on there called Eleanor, which always cracks me up when people put people's names in songs yeah. and then reverse engineer the rhymes. I'm like, was she called <laughs> Eleanor before they had heaven knocking at the door? Or was... Um, yeah. She was called Jane. Like, then, well, she actually called Ruth. That. And then they were like, damn, <laughs> it would be bloody great if Ruth rhymed with uh, nothing more. Um, yes. like, what about yes. Eleanor? <laughs> yeah, I liked it. I, I, I'm not like a big hot chip fan. I didn't really, mm. I was never into it at the beginning. I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, I don't know the, the back catalogue that well. What I loved was all the synth work. I was like, man, they're really great with all the synth production. The yeah. synths sound really rocking. It actually sounds better on headphones, I think, because I, I listened to some in my car and I was like, oh, it doesn't really kind of, it's not quite as banging. And I think it might be what you're talking about, Justin, is it sort of fits in that they, they're really good at making banging feels like they're like i can tell they're in the studio going this one rocks and then they're trying to write the song over the top and sometimes the songs don't seem to connect with the feels completely Mm. but they've got a great killer feel underneath so it's like they're sometimes it sort of misses a little bit there well i mean i still danced around quite happily i I didn't have i didn't have big expectations because i don't know the band that well i wasn't Mm. like comparing it to small expectations but a small delight i thought leading on from brett's point there and i'm getting what i'm aware this sounds like terribly faint praise but i don't mean it that way i mean you've already been fairly faint justin to be honest with you, you know, so go a bit fainter why justin, don't you justin don't worry about listening to my record you don't need to listen to my record justin. <laughs> i kept listening to this and thinking all those things that brett picked up on about you know they're clearly deeply immersed in that you know synth culture and law culture studio culture and yeah. i think they're possibly better producers than they are a band yeah, I don't think you're the first person who's said 
<laughs> yeah, and, and I, I suspect, and I say with soul wax being you know involved, yeah. well, I think that was possibly something you could have said about soul wax as well. That you know, there's a lot yes. that I really love that soul wax. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. The stuff or the remix yeah. they do. I'm not especially interested in their own music. Yeah. And they've done brilliant records for other people. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what Hot Chip benefit from. I yeah. It's the album that stood out for me. There's in Evil That Men Do, there's this really good piano break comes mm-hmm. mm-hmm. rap from Cadence Weapon. And yeah. that sort of brought the whole thing to life. Yeah. And I think maybe that could be where their, their future lies more than as a band. Yeah. Now, Yelena, people are skirting around this fact, but they haven't actually specifically mentioned that the lyrics are really depressing. Am I just broken, sings Alexis. There's a, he's having a bit of a breakdown. The song Guilty, which is a massive banger, is about having dreadful dreams and feeling awful about something he's done. What did you feel about this album? And did you feel that lyrically this is the thing that may be jarring for us? Yeah, I feel like I sit somewhere in between Justin and Brett on this because I'm glad that Justin pointed out the whole Saturday Night TV thing because my first thought when I listened to it was, this could be the soundtrack to the IKEA Summer Collection 2022 TV advert, if that's even a thing. That was just my immediate thought. (laughs) That could go on the poster. You're going to put that on the poster? (laughs) Yeah. This this is brutal. This is brutal. (laughs) It's because for me, and I'm glad that I'm dialing in from Edinburgh to talk about this, because Ready for the Floor was such a student anthem. Um, And Mm -hmm. I appreciate that kind of they got a lot slower and they'll say this themselves, they got slower and calmer in their music since then. And you see more of the sort of orchestral maneuvers and the dark influences showing. What I would say, though, is that I'm not going to write this album off just yet because I went to see them in Earth in Hackney last November and they were fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like I appreciate what Brett's saying about experiencing it in your headphones. But for me, this kind of music is something that is a collective experience of enjoyment. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. It's it's everyone on the floor, isn't it? From the floor and everyone on the floor. Um, One of the highlights as well. Do you remember when we went to see Squishy Plitty and Alexis came off? uh, One of my favourite moments of last year, Alexis came on with green and they sang Robert Wyatt's At Last I Am Free. So I kind of forgive him everything for that. Well, I'm wrapping this up um, because uh, I don't want it to be a complete gloom fest. But I think we're saying we're moderately recommending if you're in a crowded room or doing the washing up. Okay, now it is the turn of Brett McKenzie to bring in a tune for you as a recommendation and an endorsement. Brett, what have you got for us today? The song I have is uh, Kate LeBond's Moderation from her album Pompeii, which actually I guess is not super new. I think it was this year. And Kate LeBon, I've just recently kind of fallen in love with all her, her music. Um, she toured New Zealand a couple of years ago and I, and I caught a glimpse of her just doing a piano set. And then she came through just last month and I saw her play the Pompeii album live and it was just the coolest coolest show it was in a club and she had the saxophone player going through this weird chorusy synth pedal and it the whole vibe the whole band were just magic and she just created this this full atmosphere everyone was just super buzzed and i was really am- amazed by what she's created in terms of what we're talking about with hot chip that connection between songs and synthesizers and atmosphere they are completely glued together and she just carries you away into another into another into another place yeah i'm kind of buzzed on it and i've this i mean this music is good for doing the washing up and other activities <laughs> <laughs> we're big fans of Kate Bond on the podcast and so this track is cleared and it's on the playlist the link is in the show notes
not everything's coming up roses. BBC Three and Netflix's new horror Red Rose follows a group of post-GCSE teens whose lives get infiltrated by a sinister app which threatens grave consequences if they disobey it. The eight-part series is the brainchild of Bolton twins Paul and Michael Clarkson and a self-described love letter to their city. But what did we make of it? Here's the trailer. Do you believe in ghosts? A perfectly safe place to meet an anonymous stranger. What's that? You have no idea. It knows me. It follows you round. None of us should be alone right now. Roses are red, violets are blue. Come to the garden, we're waiting for you. Red Rose has been touted as Bolton's Black Mirror, a cross between Scream and Derry Girls. Justin, you're the TV watcher of us all. Can you set this up for us? Yes, so it's um, it's the long summer after they finish school. They're in that sort of hinterland between, you know, they're all about to go their separate ways and going very hard without dropping any spoilers here. Essentially, one of them is prompted to download a phone app, which essentially begins coercively controlling her. And that's sort of as much as you can say without without spoilers. The series then unfolds as the behaviour prompted by the app starts to break apart and atomize the friendship group. It's this very, very sort of tight group of boys and girls that have just left school. And every sort of fault line that's there already starts getting pushed apart very, very hard by this mysterious sort of disembodied voice in the phone. What's brilliant about this I thought, and I, I really, I couldn't praise this enough. I really, really enjoyed it. It's being marketed as a horror. And I think if you've seen the trailer, I don't think the trailer fully does it justice because it makes it look like a slightly schlocky, you know, jump scare horror thing. Rather than being scary, it's very, very creepy. It's got the sort of emotional tenor of Don't Look Now or Donnie Darko or something like that. Or even going about something like an Inspect the Calls or something like that, where you're in that very gray area as to whether something is really happening, which is supernatural and weird, or are things that are out of the ordinary just happening, but you're in like an odd suburban environment and there will be an explanation for them. There's some really interesting bigger themes going on, which I think they handle really deftly. I mean, the the big backcloth to all of it is how do you live in a culture where something becomes true just because it's happened online? And what's that sort of mutable, slippery zone between happening in real life, it happened online, which one's more important? And how are young people coping with this thing that they know is damaging them, but they can't step away from? There's a way that they could have done this where it would have been really too on the nose and a bit finger waggy. The obvious comparison I've seen made for it is Black Mirror. I actually thought it was vastly superior to Black Mirror. I thought the cast were ex- uniformly excellent. I thought they were really, really well well put together. Most of them, the the younger group of actors are basically sort of unknowns or newcomers. There's, it's a really, really strong ensemble piece. The other thing I thought was really clever from a script writing point of view was... For anyone who's writing drama and narrative, modern technology is usually a problem because it short circuits Mm. a lot of the things which narrative could turn on in the past. You know, so many old films, and do you think, you know, why don't they just pick up a phone and ring them? 
So it's neatly turned that on its head by saying, well, what can you, rather than technology hobbling those narrative problems, technology itself becomes the driver. So there's things where like, they both think they're texting each other, but this app is manipulating or interfering. Whereas that's the problem people have found with it previously. Yeah, and and I thought it's beautifully filmed. It shows, again, it's a part of the country you don't normally see. And there's another thing that I thought was really nice was it's not 16-year-olds like you see in Skins. You know, there's one person in their group who has a really bougie upper-class house and they're kind of an outlier. You know, one of them's going to food banks, which is sort of a becomes kind of a plot point that there's something where she's having to furtively go and collect food for her family. You know, one of them's lost a mum. They seem very relatable and they're at that funny kind of hinterland where they're old enough to be independent, but they're still young enough that, like, they're playing board games and stuff. And again, it's a part of youth that you doesn't last for very long and you don't often see it portrayed very accurately. I think there are a lot of those wider themes about what it's like being working class and having to navigate problems around money or socioeconomic inequality Mm -hmm. at a very young age. Brett, you've watched this as well. Do you think that it shows how technology can be used to fill the gap in dealing with not just these growing pains, but these wider issues? Yeah, what I liked about it was the it sort of captures this duality in life of, of life that's not in your phone and life that is in your phone. And there's these two worlds and the existence between the two of them. And I've sort of recently, after years of, of denying social media as a thing, I've recently engaged in it and I'm kind of like, and I found myself falling down this rabbit hole of doom scrolling and mm. and, uh, and this existence of like, oh, I'm sitting there, I'm in this room, but I'm not in this room, and um, which is obviously a very common experience, but um, I'm a kind of very late adopter. So I found it interesting that it's it's a teenage show, you know, all the characters are teenagers. So I was like, oh, this is not really my, this is probably not for me, this show. But then that duality of existence and how technology really in it, it's like the, the you called it an app. Justin, but it's sort of the way it, it's so creepy. It's so mm. ominous. It's like the music sort of sounds like Chernobyl. There's these dark rumblings. It's like, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah, feels yeah. like the phone is some creepy dude, some creepy dude who's like messing with these people. It's like he's going to be there with an axe behind the tree, but it's an app. So it has the same mm. sense of a mm. villain, but it's the phone. And um, I'm very suspicious of, of you know, I've just, I've got young kids. I'm like, oh my God, what is the world? What is it going to be like for them? So I'm sort of fascinated by this, this duality of existence. And, and I did find it really interesting and creepy, but not in a, it's more like a thriller. It's not really like a horror. It's got this sort Mm. of, this tension of, oh, something bad, what's going to happen? And um, yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting. And I think it'll, be interesting for different age groups. It's not just um, a teenage type show. I found it. I found it really cool. And one thing that was really confused me was they suddenly they're in the woods. I don't know. If, is Bolton a real place? Is that a yes. real? What is, yes, it's a real place in the north of England. It's one of those towns where like you can leave the town very quickly. Yeah, because they're like they're having they're at their school, and then the next thing they're meeting, and they're in the woods. It looks like they're in Lord of the Rings, mm. and they're like, yeah. hey, what's going on? And then they have us after end of year party. They have like a like a a, a sort of array on moorland. Yeah. Yeah, is that real? Yeah, Do people have like, after yes. parties out yeah. in the mountains? <laughs> yeah, I just could. It was like they were in a country road. I was like, "What? How they?" I sort of felt like it was sci-fi. I was like, "What? They just they're in a town, and now they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no there's no car or anything. Is that? Could you just walk to a hill and have a party in a hill like? Yeah, 
Yeah. I think one thing I thought they did really, really well was, and, and again, I would advise listeners, if you haven't seen the trailer, don't watch it because I think I've, I've seen the first three episodes of eight. I think I twigged in episode one who the villain, you know, who the villain is. Ah. That becomes much more obvious if you watch the trailer. Oh, I think okay. I haven't seen the trailer. Yeah. No, oh, I haven't seen the trailer. trailer. Yeah. But even with that, it's still, because to, to Brett's point of it being more like a thriller than a whodunit, you think, well, in terms of the whodunit element, it's not necessarily just a person, but you're like, is it energy from a sort of like bereavement, the grief? Mm. That's yeah, causing yeah, yeah. It? Is it the sort of weird kinetic energy you get around adolescence that's causing this? There's a bit where a sort of networked house goes kind of rogue on them, and you're like, is it the technology itself? And even if you kind of go, okay, on one level, there's like an obvious actual villain who's doing this mm-hmm. there's a lot of other forces working in it and i also noticed the production company who made it are the same people who made the enfield poltergeist yeah. which I thought was a really interesting echo it's got that sort of something creepy in suburbia vibe to it which is a long way up my street but i couldn't recommend this enough i yeah one there's one little little story moment that popped out for me that i thought was quite powerful where with these two friends and it's technology this this app or some this the villain, which is the the the, tech, the phone. One of the friends they've had, they've fallen out, and one friend texts their friend to say sorry. I shouldn't. Yeah, have, yeah. I was rude. I sorry. I shouldn't have said that about your mum. But when the, her friend gets the text, the text comes up as you're 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 such a bitch. I hate you. And mm. so she's apologised, but the technology has mm. changed it to this different message. And now the friends, it's killing. It's hurting the friendship. So it's mm. amazing that idea that I was like, oh well. Gee, that is not crazy. That that could, the technology could easily do that. Yeah. And I thought AI, that was amazing. Yeah, AI is listening to us already. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was really, really. It was sort of a little Shakespearean in a way. The way mm. that the the, the the dynamic between those characters and the way technology's messing with them. I found that really, really strong. I think it's just fantastic that the cast is filled with so much young talent, especially Isis Hainsworth as Rosh, who responds to how did exams go with. I'm just going to apply to Love Island instead, but it doesn't feel <laughs> hammy, you know, it feels very genuine. And I think Natalie Blair in particular really shines as Ashley. There's one scene where they're playing Guess Who and she's describing the characters as who's a drain to society. And I just think the representation of young people is so spot on with this and really just allows for a lot of self-representation more than anything else. Yeah, I agree. The acting is great, isn't it? The whole mm. cast, mm. I never felt myself going, oh, they're acting. You know, that. You know, it's like they're, yeah. they're all so good that the world yeah. just exists yeah, and feels real. So that's a real, real tribute to their, their talent, yeah. Finally, regular listeners know we always ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time to add to the playlist. This is an incredibly difficult job. We do it every week to make your lives more difficult. Brett, what have you chosen as the greatest song of all time? I've chosen Nina Simone's Here Comes the Sun. And I just love the song every time. It's just such a joyous, it's such a joyous recording. I never regret putting putting this track on. Nina Simone's such a force. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched that Questlove documentary not that long ago and seeing her perform live, you realize she is just something else. The joy that she brings to that and the George Harrison song is a, it's a magic song. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I completely love it. I mean, I've got lots of favorite songs. But I was like, oh, I've got to pick one. And that's the one I picked. Hey, did it easy. Justin Quirk, what have you chosen for us? The obvious choice, and there is no debate on this whatsoever, oh, is uh, 1978 Mighty Real by Sylvester and Patrick Cowley. The greatest single of all time is, and originally it was only a B-side. 
which wow. is insane. It wasn't even an A-side the first time it came out. It was the B-side of Dance Disco Heat, which uh, and it then got sort of picked up once they re-released it a year later. Uh, it's now in the Library of Congress due to its immense cultural value. And again, I, I live in hope that one day when they're sort of fossicking in the archives, they will uncover a 38-minute version of this where the insane endless emulator solos of patrick cowley just keep going and keep going and keep going yeah it's i absolutely love this record i must listen to it about three or four times a week and it never ever ceases to hit the mark it's uh yeah it's just what such a wonderful piece of work and sylvester was so far ahead of his time and such a one just such a glorious character and when him and Patrick Cowley came together, it was just, it was a match made in heaven. So, yeah, if you haven't listened to it in a while, just go and stick on Sylvester Mighty Real. I might do it in a minute, actually. So Nina Simone and Sylvester go on our rolling playlist. The link, as you know, is in the show notes and it's on Tidal as well as the dreaded Spotify too. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we neck a can of warm Stella and take to the dance floor to cry a little about how life is? A la hot chip. Brett, what's your CTC? Oh, yeah. You know, I've been watching Ted Lasso recently. Yes, and yes. I just, I mean, for me, I'm very much like a kind of, I quite like uh, a feel-good kind of mm-hmm. show. And I thought, oh, this is a character. There's something about Ted Lasso that reminds me of Concords. Right. They're these nice people struggling, yeah. uh, but the sort of um, the their good their goodwill. It's very uh, enjoyable to to be with those characters mm-hmm. in a TV show. Rather than so many shows are all horrible people doing horrible things, you know. And it's quite unusual to have nice people just working away, doing their mm-hmm. thing. That's not common for a TV show, yeah. Justin, what's yours? I wanted to give a, a special rest in peace shout out to Raymond Briggs, who passed away this week at the age of 88. Obviously, everyone remembers, you know, the big successful stuff like the Snowman, the clever stuff like When the Wind Blows. I just want to fly the flag for 1977's Fungus the Bogeyman with its punk energy, the green basement dwelling, fungus-filled, mucus-firing, what one hit wonder monster on book never repeated never been so r.i.p raymond briggs and thank you for brightening up my childhood <laughs> yelena what's your closing time chatter so after three years the edinburgh fringe festivals have finally returned and so have i i normally gravitate towards summer hall and its infamous barney's beers and this year has been no exception so my recommendations are as follows firstly casting it's a triple threat is it theater is it live music is it spoken word i don't know there are satirical raps in it from if i was a white girl to a remix of craig david's seven days which all lay bare the real experiences of young black women trying to break into acting it's also touring to Shoreditch Town Hall so you can catch it if you're in London too. If you're after production I recommend Home Is Not The Place in which a daughter speaks to a portrait of her dead grandfather the only other artist in her family. It's also a commentary on her gendered experience as a 1.5 generation migrant from post-partition South India. On that theme I can't recommend Exodus at the Traverse highly enough. 
Facts explores the aspiration and fates of Home Secretary Asya Rao, who is Priti Patel, pout and all. And it is remarkably surreal, but then so is politics today. My Ramona's choice is Bloody Difficult Women, which you can see at Assembly Rooms. It's ostensibly the real stories of Gina Miller and Theresa May, but it also has a lot of great man narrative with the image of Paul Dacre. And lastly, I'm going back to Summer Hall for my only at Fringe selection. It's Istoreo Negro. No spoilers, but it lays bare the lived reality of being black in Brazil today. Is that a speedy roundup for you? Well, in in response to that, Yelena, all I can say is Glasgow. I went to Glasgow at the weekend and it was brilliant and it is the cultural capital. I'm just going to say, come on, Scotland Wars. Um, <laughs> I went to see some fans. I saw a load of people. You can walk around. It was brilliant. And so that's what I'm saying. I'm moving to Glasgow. That's my closing time chat. <laughs> Simple as that. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to the glorious Brett McKenzie. Thanks for having me. That was really fun. Thanks, guys. That was fantastic. And the equally superb Justin Quirk. Thank you for having me back. For joining us today. Remember, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. It's very popular. And the link is at the top of the show notes if you haven't found it yet. From myself, Yelena, and producer Jay Bailey, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 The Culture Bunker was written and presented by the mother flippin' Yelena Sofronievich and Sean Pattenden. And the producers of this hip hop apodomus were Yelena Sofronievich, Alex Reese, and me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Hold up. 